Hello, I'm Rob Buckingham, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 34 of Digging Deeper. This is a weekly podcast in which we delve deeply into a theme or subject and look at what the Bible says about it. This week's episode will examine Jesus' life between his death and resurrection. Although his body lay in the tomb, his spirit remained alive and active. That will be discussed in greater detail later. But first and foremost, do I truly believe in universalism? And what am I hoping to accomplish with this podcast? Let's find out. I wanted to start by just kind of speaking into, I guess, a correction or maybe a misunderstanding. Uh, I caught up with a couple late last year, and uh, i got to say they were probably just uh, maybe a little miffed with me uh, because they thought that I had taught universalism on Tuesday Night Live and the Digging Deeper podcast. And so I just wanted to correct that. I've gone back and I've had also had a couple of other people uh, on our Bayside Church staff, a couple of our ministry leaders and pastors, have a listen to that particular episode and uh, to, to speak into that. And I said, you know, I don't believe in universalism, but do you think I have communicated that on that episode? And they both listened to it and they said, no, I think it's fairly clear you say I don't believe in universalism, but you're presenting what universalism teaches. And so that was a relief to me, but I thought I would just clarify it with you on the podcast and also on Tuesday Live, and that is that I believe that the gospel is universal, okay? So the the fact of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection providing the way into a relationship with God, I believe that offer is universal in nature. So when Jesus died, it's like what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.10. Um, uh, he says, we have put our hope in the living God who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. Look at that one more time. We have put our hope in the living God who is the saviour of all people, not just some, not just Christians, all people, and then especially of those who believe. And so the universal nature of the gospel is that the gospel is for everybody, but I do not believe that everyone is automatically saved. Universalism teaches uh, the belief that all humankind will eventually be saved. Um, I, I, I don't believe that because that in itself would take away from free will because really if, that, if universalism tr is true, it's almost like God would be ultimately forcing everybody to become a follower of Jesus so they can have eternity in heaven. And I believe that God doesn't cross that line of free will. So I don't believe in universalism, but I do believe in the in well if you like Christian universalism, which is 
that Christ's atonement did atone for everyone's sins. So I hope that's clear. I wanted to go from there and talk a little bit about what Tuesday Night Live and the Digging Deeper podcast is actually all about, uh, because it really is. It's a, an opportunity for, I think, mature Christians, although certainly there are younger believers who have joined us at different times, but people who are mature in their faith and and want to explore. You, you want to ask questions. You want to explore topics that we probably won't get to do on a Sunday morning during a Sunday morning service. So this for me is an opportunity to make myself available to anyone who wants to spend an hour with me in this way, to ask anything about life and faith that you want to ask, ask me to address a particular topic that we wouldn't normally get to on a Sunday morning um, and, and, and go deep. And so that's the second thing, that we get to dig deep into the Bible Thirdly, it's about discovering what Christians believe on any number of subjects, uh, understanding that the majority of Christians in who are part of a local church, and I think all Christians should be part of a local expression of the church, but when we're members of a church, we normally just get taught one view on each subject, understanding that there are Christians who love Jesus, who believe differently. The challenge is that because you only hear one view on a particular topic, let's let's pick Genesis chapter 1 as an example. You might be in a, a con, say, a conservative evangelical church where you are taught that the only right way to read Genesis 1 is that God created in a literal, in literal six 24-hour periods. Uh, that's one reading of that chapter, but there's probably about four, possibly five different understandings of Genesis 1. But what tends to happen is people get taught one view on something and then they hear a different view. And rather than thinking it through and going back to the scriptures and searching the scriptures and working out, is this right or not? Do I want to embrace this or not? They dismiss it as heresy and then they throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's an interesting saying, by the way. I don't know if you know where that came from, but it was back in the, the Middle Ages where people couldn't have a, afford to have a bath every day. They would have a bath occasionally, and the water would be heated and poured into the old tub, and then the dad would have the first bath, followed by the mum, and then the children in birth in age order from oldest down to youngest. So by the time of washing the baby, the <laughs> the water was filthy and murky. And so that's where that saying came from. It's like when you immerse the baby in the bathwater, you can't actually see the baby anymore. Be careful you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so the point here is that just because you hear a particular view on Genesis chapter 1 or the book of Revelation or the concept of hell or the lack thereof, uh, all of these sorts of topics of which there are three, four or five different views that Christians who love Jesus have believed for 2,000 years. And so we've got to be big people to be able to uh, listen to something that may be different to what we've normally heard. 
and go, okay, that's really interesting. I'm going to dig back into my Bible because I've never heard this before. I don't want to just throw it away. I'm not going to embrace it either until I've actually done due diligence and studied. Uh, Because the thing is, Christians don't agree on so many different topics. We agree on Jesus, right? We agree that Jesus is God in a human body, that he lived that he died and rose again, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is still in a human body and he is forever interceding for us so that he can save us completely. One day he's going to return. All Christians believe those things. It's everything to do with Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he's doing and what he's going to do. On pretty well everything else, Christians disagree. We still love Jesus, but we disagree on a bucket load of things. That's why in the world today, there are approximately 39,000 different Christian denominations. Scary thought, isn't it? And, and all <laughs> invariably, they all think they're the right ones. And, and, they've, and other people are just wrong on, on certain things. I think we need to be bigger than that. And that's what Tuesday Night Live and the Digging Deeper podcast is all about. I think we need to learn to live in the tension of people believing differently to us. I, I hope even in our own church, in Bayside Church, we would have people who believe differently on a whole stack of different things. There would be people who have different views on Genesis 1, different views on the book of Revelation. I, I have certain views on those things and I will teach according to how I see the scripture. But I, I also want to give freedom for people in our church community to say, you oh, that doesn't completely resonate with me. As long as we agree on Jesus, that's the main thing. And, and then we can live in the tension of you have a different view to me on this particular topic. And you know what? It's okay. And we, it's not a deal breaker. Sometimes people will leave a church and go to another church uh, because they disagree with a pastor on one, one topic, which isn't even a foundational topic anyway. To, to the Christian experience and, and to salvation. So as long as Jesus is my centre, I think of the old hymn, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And, and, and it is, you know, but I, my, I stand strong on Jesus Christ. He's my rock and he is your rock and he's in the centre and then everything else can take its place. The last thing I'll say on this, and I think this is probably the most important out of anything I've said so far, and that is I believe that truth is a verb. And we need to be very careful that we don't fall into the trap of treating the Bible as a book of facts to be memorised or learned. It's not a book of facts. It's a book of truth that needs to be lived And we can argue doctrine till we're blue in the face and we can fall out with each other and Christians do and I think it's absolutely tragic when people fall out with each other over over different doctrines. Uh, We need to unite in Jesus Christ and then as we're reading and studying and and meditating on on the words of Scripture, we need to ask how can this truth change my life and impact those around me? What is the Bible saying here that I can flesh out, that I can incarnate, 
that I can live out in my everyday life in order to make the world a better place around me. That's what the Bible is all about. It's truth as life. How am I going to live this? Not just facts to be argued. And so that's what Tuesday Night Live and the Digging Deeper podcast is all about. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and that it helps you with your understanding of the Bible and how it applies to life. If you're finding it helpful, please let others know about it. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. That goes a long way to help other people find us. And please like us on Facebook. Now back to Rob. Let us get into this first question, which is a beauty. Jesus accomplished great things in hell. Did he rescue those who committed murder? people like David and Moses, and lead them out of hell? I love this question, and I'll do my very best uh, to answer it. I want to start by reading to you the Apostles' Creed, and this is the Lutheran version of the Creed, uh, where we find a line in there uh, uh, about our topic in, in in this discussion, in this podcast. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. That's the line. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And you know, encapsulated in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, which is very similar, really is the body of of essential Christian truth. And I think that we should be able to unite as followers of Jesus on the Apostles' Creed and or the Nicene Creed. Everything up else we can, we can discuss and disagree on, and that is fine. So the statement, he descended into hell, deals with the time between Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. Jesus went somewhere during this time, and this statement in the Creed suggests that it was to hell that he went. This line was a much later addition to the creed, most likely in the latter part of the 4th century. And it's an addition that has sparked much controversy and debate over the centuries as to its precise meaning. And so as a classic example of Christians disagreeing with different things, let me go through the five different beliefs that Christians have on this line in the creed and what Jesus was doing between his death and resurrection. Uh, The first view is that some consider this line of the Apostles' Creed optional or they refuse to include it at all. In other words, they do not believe that Jesus descended to hell between his death and resurrection. Belief number two, some believe, uh, believe that the descent into hell represents the physical agony of death upon the cross. In other words, it was hellish in its pain and that Jesus went to hell while he was crucified. Number three, others believe that when people are dead, they are unconscious. That's the doctrine of soul sleep. 
and that Jesus was in this state between his death and resurrection, so he wasn't really anywhere. Number four, there are those who believe Jesus carried the sins of the world to hell, that his suffering continued there, and thus the cross was actually not the completion of Christ's work. He completed the work while he was in hell. And then number five, uh, Jesus carried good news of deliverance to the godly dead, such as Lazarus the beggar and also the repentant thief. A third century Syrian creed speaks of Jesus, and I quote, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and departed in peace in order to preach to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the saints concerning the end of the world and the resurrection of the dead. Now, I said before there are five different views. There are not. There are six. And the sixth one is the one that I believe and I'm going to teach to you. Others believe, as I do, that the descent into hell accounts for the problem of God's justice by providing an opportunity for everyone to hear the message of redemption for Jesus himself. In other words, Jesus went to this place that the creed calls hell and brought the good news of the gospel to uh, those who were righteous as well as those who were unrighteous. So let's answer this question. What was Jesus doing between his death and resurrection? I'm going to split this into two things. First of all, we're going to address what Jesus' body was doing, and then we're going to look at what Jesus' spirit was doing. Really, his body was actually doing nothing. According to the Apostles' Creed, Jesus was crucified, died, and buried. The statement, he descended into hell, does not refer to Jesus' body that remained in the tomb for these three days. And I'm going to read with you, and you might want to grab your Bible or or have your Bible Gateway app or whatever you use uh, on your phone, and we're going to look at a bit of Scripture. Matthew chapter 12 and verses 38 to 40. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign for you, from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." Interesting. Now, the heart of the earth here refers to the grave. That was their view. Uh, and, and so he's talking about the time of Jonah being similar to the time of Jesus Christ. I want you to just reflect for a moment on Jonah's message. Remember, he was sent by God to Nineveh. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because the Jews did not like the Assyrians. And so Jonah knew that, that well, he, he kind of thought that I'm going to go there and I'm going to tell them that judgment is coming, so you need to turn from your sin. But I don't want them to turn from their sin. I want them to be judged. <laughs> that was his attitude. And so he's like, God wants me to go that way, so I'm going this way. And so he, he took off, and, and you know the story, right? Got thrown overboard, swallowed by a big fish. It doesn't say whale, just a big fish. And he was, according to Jesus here, three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish. And in that same way, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, talking here about the grave. Interesting that Jesus would tie his work into what Jonah did. 
So what Jonah did was go to the people who were his enemies and he ended up going there, as we know, and he preached to them about coming judgment and the need for repentance. And it tells us in the book of Jonah that the whole city listened to Jonah and repented and got right with God. And Jonah, in the last chapter, he he chucks a hissy fit. He, he goes into a deep depression. He's like, yeah, I knew this was going to happen. Now you're going to save my enemies. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it's very funny, actually. I, I have a read of it. He just has this little pity party. He invites himself. And I think deep down he quite enjoys his time. Uh, he's annoyed with God because God saved his enemies. What a beautiful uh, story that is in illustrating the gospel of Jesus, where Jesus comes to people that are the enemies of God, people that weren't necessarily interested in him, people who were living sinful lives, and he presents good news that people respond to, uh, all because of his work of dying on a cross, spending three days and three nights in the grave. And so Jonah's message is the same as Jesus' message. Three days and three nights, by the way, need not imply three complete days and three complete nights. Uh, I'm told in Jewish tradition that parts of a 24-hour day were counted as representing a whole day. And in early Jewish law, only after three days was the witness to a person's death accepted. So Jesus had to be dead for three days. The witness to his death then was accepted, and then he was raised from the dead. Of course, he wasn't in the grave for three complete 24-hour periods, but if we bring that into our calendar, he died on a Friday, he rose again on a Sunday, that is Friday, Saturday and Sunday, which the Jews would see as three days and three nights, okay? Uh, in his Acts 2 Pentecost sermon, Peter quotes from Psalm 16 and applies it to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, in Acts 2, verse 27, it says, You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. And so Jesus is in the heart of the earth and uh, he's in the realm of the dead and his body would not see decay. And so he was resurrected after three days before decay completely set in. In Psalm 16, the Hebrew word translated the realm of the dead is Sheol. And in Acts 2.31, it's Hades, uh, which is the Greek. So Hebrew is Sheol and uh, the Greek is Hades. Both words are used in scripture either to refer to a literal grave, a burial place, or for the place where the souls of the dead were said to go. In this instance, the meaning is the literal grave. Jesus' body was not abandoned there. He did not see decay because he was raised from the dead. One more interesting verse uh, on Jesus' body at death we find in Romans chapter 6 and verse 9, since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again, death no longer has the mastery over him. This infers that death once did have the mastery over Jesus, and that was during the time that was he was in the grave. But what about Jesus' spirit uh, between his death and his resurrection? We know that his body 
was in the tomb, but what was his spirit doing while his body was in the tomb? Well, in one word, his spirit was preaching. When Jesus died, he went to the place of the dead, as I mentioned before, in Sheol or Hades, whether it's Hebrew or Greek, being under the power of death until his resurrection. According to the Bible, this place, Sheol or Hades, is a temporary place where souls are kept as they await the final resurrection and judgment. It is to this realm that Jesus descended between his death and his resurrection. What was Sheol or Hades like? I've um, taken this next excerpt from the Bible Study Tools website, uh, which is very good, by the way, and I've, I've just kind of put a little section together from that website that explains um, what Sheol or Hades is like. Through much of the Old Testament period, it was believed that all people went to one place, whether human uh, or animal, they all went there, righteous or wicked. No one could avoid Sheol, which was thought to be down in the lowest parts of the earth. We've talked about this before, but they viewed the earth as a flat disc. It was, it was uh, round in shape, but flat. And under it was Hades or Sheol. Above it, was heaven or paradise, and then there was the atmosphere and the earth. And when people died, they went under the earth or to the lowest parts of the earth. Unlike this world, Sheol is devoid of love, hate, envy, work, thought, knowledge, and wisdom. There is no light, no remembrance, no praise of God. In fact, no sound at all. Its inhabitants are weak and trembling, uh, who can never hope to escape from its gates. Sheol is like a ravenous beast that swallows the living without being sated. Some thought the dead were cut off from God, while others believe that God's presence reached even to Sheol. And uh, I believe that God's presence even reached to Sheol. And uh, one of the verses I love for that is Psalm 139 and verse 8. And uh, David is saying to God, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, Sheol, you are there. God is everywhere. You can't cut yourself off from an omnipresent being. Toward the end of the Old Testament, God revealed that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Sheol will devour no longer. Instead, God will swallow up death swallow up death in victory, and uh, we'll look at that a little bit later. Um, there is another verse which I think is really, really interesting, and that's Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 19. But your dead will live, Lord, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Uh, written in a beautifully poetic way, uh, but a wonderful truth. So what did Jesus do in that three-day period between his death and resurrection while he was visiting this place called Sheol or Hades? There's a really good scripture. and In fact, Peter gives us most of the revelation when it comes to what Jesus was doing. So the first verses are in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 18, 19 and 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to or, or preaching to the imprisoned spirits, those that were in Hades, those that were in Sheol, the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago. So not just the righteous, but the unrighteous as well. Um, he goes on in verse 20, he says, uh, those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built in it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And he goes on, I think, talking about baptism. So the word proclamation there almost always is used in Scripture about preaching the gospel. So Jesus is there making proclamation to the imprisoned spirits who were disobedient a long time ago. And so that is Jesus bringing the gospel, telling these people the good news uh, to the imprisoned spirits. These are human spirits. The gospel is for people. It's not for angels. And he talks here about the days of Noah, not that it's just those people who would hear the gospel, but these were the worst of people. And so even the worst of people, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 tells us of, of the time just before Noah's flood. And it said, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Maybe you just need to read and meditate on that a little bit. I hear people saying, you know, the worst, the world is getting worse and worse and worse. No, it's not. It kind of goes in stages, you know, it gets a bit better and a bit worse, a bit better and a bit worse. But overall, the trajectory is a much improved world on what it was even a few decades ago. If you go back a few hundred years or a few thousand years, the world today is a much better place. And in the days of Noah, every inclination of the thoughts of their heart were only evil all the time. So the truth here is that the gospel is not just for good people. Anyone can be touched by the love of God and the message of salvation. Jesus preached to the preached the gospel to the worst of people. Salvation is made available to all people. And have a look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 6. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. And so the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. So that why? They might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So the spirits of people made alive by the good news of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther wrote um, many words, many commentaries when he was alive. Here's a quote uh, from one of his commentaries about this particular passage in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 6. He says, This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. 
Don't you love the honesty of Martin Luther there? I, I do. I just think it's absolutely fantastic. What does that mean? Well, actually, I'm not really sure. Let's read the next verse. The inference, of course, in this verse is that Jesus, while dead, offered salvation to all who had died before his time. And, and so in God's justice, he, he wasn't going to damn people who didn't accept something that wasn't available. It's a bit like today, you know, does God damn people for rejecting a Messiah that they've never heard of? Well, we've talked about that previously, and my view is I don't think so. And so um, the United Bible Society's New Testament handbook series puts it this way, the dead heard the gospel when it was preached to the spirits. These include both the righteous and the unrighteous. It includes David, it includes Moses, even people that had murdered, committed adultery. The gospel is for everyone. Of course, what about today? Uh, people today who have never heard the gospel. Well, in a letter, Martin Luther once again wrote to Hans von Reschenberg uh, in 1522 about the possibility that people could turn to God after death. And I'll read to you here uh, Martin Luther's words. It would be completely a completely different question to ask whether God could grant faith to a few at the moment of their death or after death and thereby save them through faith. Who would doubt that God could do this, but no one can prove that he does do this? And again, I love Luther's honesty here. We don't know that God does that, but who would doubt in God's love and grace that he actually would do that? Uh, Let's go into the New Testament. Uh, Well, actually, no, we've been in the New Testament, haven't we? Let's have a look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 7 to 10. Uh, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he, Jesus, ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Wow. I mean, this this is mind-blowing stuff. So here, the Apostle Paul, and yes, he gets a bit wordy and you really have to kind of slow down and read this and, and think it through, but he's talking about what, what Jesus did. So he descended to the lower earthly regions Again, the thinking of the day was that this place was under the flat disc. We know that's not the case now, but that's where Jesus went. He went to Sheol, Hades, the place of the departed, uh, the spirits of dead people, righteous and unrighteous. And and he went there uh, and, and then he ascended and it says, and he took many captives with him. So those who had been captive in Sheol, in Hades, Jesus liberated. So he preached the gospel. Of course they accepted the gospel. Who <laughs> wouldn't? And then he, he took many captives uh, and, and then he took them, he ascended with them uh, into heaven or into, into paradise. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful truth. So have a read of that through the week. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Christ has made captives of those who were once prisoners. 
the souls of people held captive in Sheol in Hades, he's now liberated once they heard the good news of Jesus Christ once they heard the gospel. Paul is quoting here, by the way, uh, Psalm 68, verses 18 through 20, and I'll read that to you. When you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Saviour, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Wonderful truth. Uh, Psalm 68, verses 18, 19, and 20. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has triumphed over Satan, sin, and death which once held us captive. We'll have a look at a few more verses uh, on this before I wrap this up. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He certainly triumphed over the powers of darkness and proclaimed victory over them. I want you to notice there the word triumph, triumphing over them by the cross. Uh, This was very well known uh, in the first century. Of course, it was the Roman Empire, and the Romans, when they defeated an enemy, would bring uh, some of their captives, they would bring back with them as kind of trophies, slaves, if you like. Uh, They would have carts of of the spoil, the gold and the jewels and other treasures that they'd taken. And, And all the people would gather and line the main streets of Rome and then the procession would start and the procession was called a triumph. And right at the front would be these slaves and these uh, captives. Uh, They would walk out the front and they they would be all chained up, uh, often beaten, and people would throw rotten eggs and rotten vegetables at them and jeer at them. Um, A horrible thing to do. Um, And and that's, that's what Paul is talking about here, that Jesus did that for, for the devil and demons. He, he triumphed, uh, triumphed over them by the cross. Uh, he disarmed the powers and authorities. He disarmed the devil. He disarmed the demons, triumphed over the powers of darkness um, through his death and through his resurrection. And then uh, the last one is Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. And uh, it says here, do not be afraid. I think this is Jesus speaking. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Isn't that wonderful? He's got the keys. And so he's liberated the captives and, uh, and he's led them in his train. Uh, Michael Horton, in his book on the Apostles' Creed, says, His hell gained our heaven. His curse secured our blessing. His incalculable grief brought us immeasurable joy. And so Jesus went to hell, Hades really, and back so that we don't have to.
the concept of Abraham's bosom, this is uh, Luke chapter 16. And uh, in Luke 16, you find the is a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus was the poor beggar. Uh, he, was, he used to sit outside the rich man's house begging. Uh, he had sores all over his body. The dogs used to come up and lick the sores. Uh, the rich man had everything he wanted, all the money, all the food, never thought about helping Lazarus. And so in this parable that Jesus tells, uh, the next scene is that both the rich man and Lazarus die and Lazarus goes to this place that is often referred to as Abraham's bosom, uh, a place of blessing and peace and joy. And we find the, the rich man is in pain, in torment. And there's this dialogue then that takes place between um, the rich man and Lazarus and Father Abraham. And we've got to remember that it's a parable. And so Jesus will use stories. To, uh, the stories communicate truth. It doesn't mean that every detail in the parable has to be true. Uh, and that's a really important distinction. So uh, most of the time you find that the, the parables of Jesus are teaching identification. Who do I identify with in this parable or, or whose behaviour should I identify with or shouldn't have I identified with? So what Jesus is communicating in this parable is that, that people in need uh, and, and people who have everything they need and more, often live side by side. And righteousness would say if you have more than you need, that you will have your eyes open to people in need around you in order to help them in some way. And so the rich man is tormented because he had it all and yet he didn't open his eyes long enough. I mean, he must have walked in and out of his front gate, surely. He would have walked, walked right past Lazarus, sitting there, that poor beggar um, with sores all over his body, just begging for enough food, and the rich man's coming in and out going, oh, I wonder what I'm going to do with all my money. Duh. And, of course, there are people like that in the Western world particularly. Um, I, I mentioned this several times, but if United Nations um, released a, a quote back in 1998 and it said if everybody in the developed world gave the cost of a cappuccino per week to combat world poverty, world poverty would be eradicated. So the fact is that the vast majority of people in the Western world don't even donate $5 a week to combat poverty. And yet if we all did that together... Poverty could be eradicated on planet Earth. And so there's plenty of uh, people like the rich man around and uh, they will find a life actually of torment, really, because you've got to have a flow-through in your life. And I love God is not against rich people, um, but he is against stingy people. And that's why I love people like, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett and people like that, multi-billionaires who have literally poured 50% or more of their wealth into foundations that are relieving poverty on a massive scale all around the world, doing a wonderful job. Uh, of course, I don't have billions of dollars, um, but I, I do find that invariably I have a little more than I need and I want to make sure that with that I make 
make a difference to people who have little or nothing. And I, I do that predominantly through uh, Bayside Church Home and Away, uh, helping Matt's Place locally uh, get hot meals to people that are poor, uh, disenfranchised, homeless in the Bayside part of Melbourne and I also give to our forever home uh, which has adopted 10 abandoned kids uh, in Johannesburg in South Africa. So that's where the concept of Abraham's bosom came from. I hope I've answered that okay. Um, Have a read of the parable. You'll find it in Luke chapter 16. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Every Wednesday, a new episode of Digging Deeper is released. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with others and rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way towards helping others in discovering us. If you have a question or topic that you want Rob to speak into, please contact us at Rob Buckingham's Public Figure Facebook page. Pastor Rob will speak on one of the Hebrews warnings in next week's edition of Digging Deeper, specifically Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 6. These are fairly intimidating terms, so how should we interpret them? Additionally, we'll explore the Apostles' Creed and recall the enlightening conversation with a Jehovah's Witness regarding the three wise men. We hope you'll be able to join us then.